probably figured that I'll be uh, preaching on the, the topic of the church, what it means to be God's people. But, but what springs to mind when you actually hear the word church? Right? And, and probably, possibly more importantly, what, what springs to mind for those in our culture when they hear of the church? So it's important if we're, if we're aiming to reach those around us in our community, it's important to know what they actually think about the church. If we want to invite them along, what do they actually think about it? You'll probably get mixed reports. There'll be some positive, some negative, some very negative, uh, but mostly probably actually a lot of apathy. They just, just don't really care. And sometimes people view the church of, at the local level. If you ask them what they think about the church, they'll, they'll think about maybe here in this town, um, you know, the individual buildings, cliche church buildings, or in our case now, council chambers doesn't look like a cliche church building, and that's, that's fine. Um, but maybe they'll think about the people. Um, you know, it's, it's a group of people. It's made up of just nice people with good intentions. They're probably a bit weird, a bit religious or something like that, you know. Uh, but they do some nice things for, for the community, and that's, that's about it. Um, and instead, some people will think of the church more in broad, overarching terms, the institution of the church, you know, the organisation. You know, they, they think of it in terms of having a lot of money, you know, cover-ups, corruption, uh, lots of scandal, you know, especially in, in light of the, the recent controversies with, with um, the, the Roman Catholic Church and George Pell and all of those, those cover-ups. Um, you know, all the time on the, on the news reports, they'll talk about how this will impact the church, as if it's just this one uh, individual entity. Obviously, I could go into all the details of, of my thoughts on Roman Catholicism and why I believe that has nothing to do with the church, but that's a, that's a sermon for another time. But, but, um, but, but it's really important to know how we're going to be perceived when we invite people to come to church, when we say that we go to church, there's a lot of baggage and, and misconceptions. So it's important that we clarify that for ourselves so that we can reach other people. Because I actually think even those of us who are regular churchgoers, we can, we can have some, uh, some wrong ideas as to what the church is. We might see it as the church building. That church is a place that you go and nothing more. That it's something that you can do once a week. Maybe it's something that you can be a part of. You know, we, we all believe the same gospel message and so we all get together because we have so much in common with our beliefs, so we'll get together and, and call that church. It's just a common belief. And that's partly true, but we'll see that it's much, much more than that. But as we go through this passage, we're going to see exactly what it means to be the church, who we are, what we're called to be, and what we're called to do. But firstly, this passage actually gives us an understanding of, of who Jesus is and his calling and then how that relates to us as followers of Jesus. So uh, keep your Bibles open uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2 and so we're starting from verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. So who's that referring to? Who's the As you come to him. A living stone rejected by men. What? Jesus, the one, the one that we come to to receive salvation, the one who was rejected. But Peter is referring back. Look, look back in verse 3, the, the, the passages from beforehand, uh, from, from last week. It says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
And then he says, as you come to him. So this is sort of just a, a quick side detail, but it's just, it's just really interesting when we see the New Testament authors do this. So Peter is actually quoting from Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in Psalm 34, the Lord is referring to God, the Lord God, the creator of the universe. And then Peter says, oh, and as, as you come to this Lord, the Lord Jesus, the one who was rejected by men. So it's just one of those, those hints that we get or, the, the, or even a clarification that the New Testament authors, when they talk about Jesus, he's not a mere man. He's not just a good religious teacher. He's God. They're taking passages from the Old Testament that clearly refer to God and saying, this, this is all about Jesus. So we worship Jesus as the Lord, as God, as the creator of the universe, as the sovereign king, the judge of all humanity. But verse 4 also says that Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Uh, I think we, I won't go into all the details, come and, and pick my brain about Trinitarian theology uh, after the service, but, but really what he's getting at is that Jesus is God, he's the Lord, and yet he was also chosen and precious in the sight of God the Father. So it's the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God. And that's not the primary purpose of the text, but it's just, it's just interesting and worth pointing out um, of, of how the New Testament authors and, and what we believe as Christians as to who Jesus is. And so in the New Testament, he's given many, many different titles, that he's God, that he's Lord, that he's Saviour, King, Judge. And here in First Peter, there's a, there's a pretty unique title, a living stone. A bit of an odd title, you know, when, when he gets called Judge or Saviour, it's pretty self-explanatory. We, we know what he's getting at when it says that Jesus is Saviour, we go, well, he's, he saved us. But now we come to Jesus as a living stone. And we know what he's getting at because he's actually referring back to two Old Testament passages. So we've got them up on the screen there. So Isaiah 28, 16 and Psalm 118, 22. So Isaiah speaks of God choosing a precious stone to be the foundation. And the psalmist speaks of, of people rejecting God's cornerstone. And we know that, that Peter is referring and alluding to these passages because he actually goes on, you'll see later on in the passage, he directly quotes them. So we can tell already he's, he's building up to that um, by, by alluding to them. But so what's Peter getting at when he's calling Jesus a living stone rejected by men? Well, it actually refers to the rejection of Jesus and specifically culminating in his crucifixion. And we know this because this verse in, uh, from Psalm 118 actually appears several times in the New Testament. And so even Peter himself, uh, he wrote, wrote this epistle, he appears in, in the book of Acts, we see Peter preaching. And so in, in Acts 4.11, uh, so this is just after Peter has, has healed a crippled, crippled man. Uh, the rulers of the temple ask him, how, how did you heal this guy? And he responds in, in Acts 4, says, let it be known to all of you, and to all of whom, um, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And we actually see Jesus using this passage from Psalm 118 even before he was crucified. He's already predicting 
his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. So that's in, in Matthew 21. There's the, the parable of the vineyard um, or the, the tenants. And so the master sends back servants to the vineyard to check on how it's going and, and they kill the servants. And so he sends another one and they kill him again. And then eventually the, the master sends his own son and they even kill the son. And so Jesus uses this parable to condemn the Pharisees and then the people of Israel because they rejected. God would send prophet after prophet after prophet until he sent his own son and they rejected them and they killed him, even his own son. And Jesus finishes that parable and then says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? But we see from that, that passage in Acts as well. So not only was Jesus rejected by men in his crucifixion, but he was also vindicated in his resurrection. He, he was proven to be chosen and precious in the sight of God. And, and so the word for precious in, in that passage, it, it really means honour, which I think becomes important late, later on in the passage. There's the, the contrast of honour and, and shame. But so here so far, we have two conflicting opinions on Jesus. We have men humanity's opinion on Jesus to reject him, to treat him like dirt. And that's either through uh, anger and hostility or just through apathy. And I think that's all of us today. Before we come to Christ, every one of us rejected Jesus. And that can be in the form of outright hostility or it can just be apathy. The, the belief that I don't need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I'm, I'm in control. I get to choose everything for my own life and I, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. But either way, it's still rejection of Jesus as, as Lord. So we have that. We have humanity's opinion, rejection of Jesus, and then we have God's opinion that Jesus is chosen and precious and honoured by God. So it's silly question time. Whose opinion matters more? Humanity's rejection of Jesus or God choosing Jesus as precious and honoured? But really, really think about it though. Jesus was scorned and dishonoured by men. It was the all-knowing God and yet he was mocked and treated like he was foolish. He was treated as though he was evil, as though he was blaspheming God. And he was put to death in the most dishonourable and humiliating way. The creator of the universe was put to death and mocked. But he's then received honour from God as he was uh, vindicated as he was raised from the dead. So humanity's opinion of Jesus becomes irrelevant in light of the fact that the Father has raised him up, he's ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he'll one day judge the world. And the reality is our opinions don't have the ability to change that. Whether you receive salvation or whether you reject Christ, he's still seated on the throne anyway. So we don't have the option to decide to make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. We just need to submit to that. The only option is to either accept or reject God's vindication of Jesus. So we see that only one opinion really matters. In the sight of God, Jesus is, is chosen and precious. But now, look down in verse 5. Peter switches his attention to the church. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. 
So he's making a comparison here between Jesus and the church. In the same way that Christ is chosen and precious like a living stone rejected by men, the church is now made up of living stones. It's saying that we too are chosen and precious in the sight of God. Different reasons, obviously. And this is actually consistent with the opening verses in the letter that we're chosen and precious and honoured in the sight of God. The, the opening passage uh, of First of Peter calls us elect exiles, that we're a chosen people. We're chosen by God, and yet we're rejected by the world, just like Jesus was. And then the passage goes on in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 of our rejection and our suffering that will actually purify us. And the next week we, we talked about the hope that we have in the midst of this suffering and in the midst of this rejection, we still have an eternal hope in Jesus. And that's actually going to continue to be a running theme throughout this book of First Peter is the rejection that the Christians in the first century were facing and, and how we as Christians live in a world that is not our own. So we've been chosen and saved out of this world, but then we're faced with the exact same question for our lives. We, we talk about the, the opinions of men and the opinions of, of God. And so another silly question time. What matters more? What, what other people think of us or what God thinks of us? Again, it's, 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 an, easy, it's an easy answer, but, but if we're honest, I, I think this is an area where we actually fall short. We, we know the right answer, but we do actually let the opinions of others distract us or even inhibit us when we're trying to live a life that's pleasing to God. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, in light of what we've been talking about from those previous passages of, of the eternal hope that we have, what does it really matter, the opinions of others, if we have an eternal hope? When it really matters what God thinks of us. But we actually do place so much effort into pleasing others. We care so much about what people think of us. Uh, I've heard one, one preacher put it, that we buy, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. That takes up far too much of our time. Of course, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with helping others, with serving others, with pleasing others. But if we're doing it to gain honour from them rather than from God, then our motivation is off. And if we do it to the point where it becomes a, a distraction or, or it's odd, at odds with pleasing God, then, it, then it's a problem. And I think that's going to be an increasing problem as our culture's values become further apart and become the polar opposite of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then it means we're going to have to actually choose between pleasing those around us or pleasing God. Uh, but, but I think we're actually possibly more guilty, not in the things that we, we say and do, but it's the things that we don't do. It's when we, we, when we choose to remain silent, that's when we can compromise. When we know that we should speak up if someone says something that's contrary to God's word. It could be about who Jesus is, about the truth of God's word, or it could be a moral issue when it's, you know, lots of different things being talked about in, probably in your workplace. But then we remain silent. If you're worried about what people will think of you or what people will say of you. Say, if I share my faith, they'll think that I'm dumb. They'll think that I hate science, which was 
nice and difficult for me when I was doing a science degree to, to stand up and actually say, no, I, I do actually believe the Bible. I, I trust God's word. They might think that you're dumb. They might think you're just a bit weird. But it's, it's becoming increasingly common to actually think that you might be immoral for believing the Bible. So there's an, an increasing cost to sharing our faith. But it doesn't matter. We're not here to please men. We're here to please God. And I'm not saying go out there and intentionally offend everyone by being a jerk and then when people are rightfully offended, you just go, well, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But, but it's easy to care more about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. It's easy to care more about the short-term response rather than the long-term joy that comes with pleasing God. But what will their opinion really matter on Judgment Day? So we can do it in many ways, not just by choosing to remain silent when given the opportunity to preach the gospel. We can be silent by refusing to take a stand on, on moral issues, but it's not actually just always about our speech. It can be our actions our refusal to participate in others with sin, our unwillingness to be seen as the odd one out. So how, how do you cope with that if you're with a group of people and everyone is doing something, say, <laughs> gossiping with one another? How hard is it to actually just say, no, I'm, I'm not actually gonna, g- going to participate in that and be left out socially, be the odd one out? But this text is reminding us of whose opinion really matters in the end. Those rejecting Jesus can go to the point of killing him, but God will overcome. God is the one who vindicates people. This doesn't mean that there won't be injustice in the short term, that there won't be consequences. It can cost you friends or family or your job or or comfort. It can definitely cause a lot of stress. But knowing long term that we'll all stand before God, in light of that, it really doesn't matter what people think of us. Because God can vindicate us. So it's recognizing that that Jesus is the one that we'll all stand before one day. And that's easy when you're Jesus, when he's the one that's vindicated by God, because he was sinless. He was proven to be who he said he was. But what about when you're us, regular sinful people, then that's, that becomes a problem. Uh, and I've heard this phrase way too many times when people say, well, only God can judge me. That sounds a good cliche phrase, but that's a terrifying phrase. That only God can judge me. When, when we're discussing moral issues, they go, only God is my judge. That's a problem when he's the perfect and holy judge and we are not. We need to be made right with God. And that's actually what he's doing in, in this passage when we see the, the rejection and the vindication of Jesus through his death and resurrection. God is actually making a way for people to be reconciled with God, forgiven of their sins, so they no longer have to fear that condemnation on Judgment Day. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've come to God through Christ. But more than that, God isn't just saving us individually. God is gathering together a people for himself, a people that are to become more and more like Jesus as they follow him, living stones following the example of Jesus. 
So let's uh, look down in the, the rest of verse 5. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter uses the same terminology to refer to believers. Jesus is a living stone, and now we are called as living stones. We, his people, have new life with Christ, we identify with him, and we become like him. And this type of metaphor is used uh, throughout the New Testament, where referred to as the temple of God or the house of God. Uh, but here it's, it's living stones. I like this metaphor because it refers to us as, as individuals and yet also being built up to something corporate. So far, far too often we can talk about our salvation in terms of you have sinned against God, you need forgiveness, Jesus died for you and you turn to him and get forgiven. All of that is true, absolutely. But we're being saved into something corporate. We're being saved as a collective people of God. Our individual salvation contributes to the greater story that God is building a complete building made up of individual people. And that's why you cannot be a solo Christian. And I like how John preached on that last week that we're commanded to love one another. And then people say, oh, well, I love Jesus, but I don't really care for church. You know, I can just love Jesus in my own way, at home, by myself. What do you do with those commands to love one another? It doesn't make any sense. And the same thing is true here. What do you do with this passage if you just want to be a solo Christian? There's no such thing. It's an oxymoron. We're, we're being saved together to love one another, to be the church together, to corporately worship together. So everything that we're called to do, worship, even evangelism, even the, the exercising of our gifts, the reason why God gave gifts to the church was not for our own benefit. It's so we can serve one another. If you try these things on your own, it will fail. So we, the church, are to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament system. And, and we see that uh, in the, the various titles that he gives the church. So a, a spiritual house... A, a holy priesthood and, and offering sacrifices. So the church is not just a carbon copy of the Old Testament system. It's, it's actually better. It's, it's a fulfillment. So the church being referred to as a spiritual house, a, a temple. Peter isn't referring to a physical location, but the people. We are the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to the day when we'll dwell with God in the new heaven and new earth in an even more uh, real and tangible way. But he does dwell with his people now. But I think it's, it's, it's really important to recognize what that actually means as far as our, 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 our misconception of what it means to come into the presence of God. And that's why I found it really, really difficult uh, last year uh, going to Jerusalem to the, the Wailing Wall. So you've got the, um, the, the Western Wall and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem there. And there were thousands of Jews lined up trying to get as close as they could. They're not allowed at the top now that there's 
uh, the, the mosque at the top, but they're trying to get as close as they can to the spot where the temple of God was so they could get, uh, get into the presence of God. And so they'll go up to this wall and pray with their nose right up against the wall. And people will say, oh, isn't it just so beautiful that they're praying and trying to get close to the presence of God? And I, I just found it sad because they're looking in the wrong place. That the presence of God is not found in a physical location anymore. It's in the, the body of believers, the church that are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's where God's presence is. And so we can do the same thing though. We can go, as, as important as it is to come to church, we can still see church as coming into the presence of God. But we already have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's how we come into the most holy place. Similarly, the, the priesthood. In the Old Testament system, they would have priests that would step into the presence of God on behalf of the people of Israel. If you were a regular is, Israelite, you couldn't go into the temple. You had to go and take your animals to, to the Levites. They would sacrifice it for you. They would take it into the most holy place. But we can come directly to God through Christ because we are all made priests. So if you want to come to God, if you haven't actually come to God through Jesus Christ, then you, you don't actually need to come through a pastor or a minister or an elder. Sure, come to us if you have questions about how to respond to the gospel. If you want advice to figure out what exactly the gospel is. But we're not mediators. We're not priests in that sense. We can all come to God through Jesus and no one else. We don't need another human mediator other than Christ. So we're a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and offering spiritual sacrifices. So that's a little bit different than the old covenant. It's not about the blood sacrifices. They've already been fulfilled in Jesus. I'll just uh, briefly mention Romans 12.1 explains what it means for the church to offer sacrifices. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our spiritual sacrifices aren't individual, you know, sacrifices of blood atonement. It's, it's our entire lives devoted to living for Jesus. through these. Okay, so down, uh, look down in verses uh, 6 through 8, you'll see various quotations there. So from verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying, a stone in Zion, uh, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So it sounds very, very similar to what he said earlier on about the living stone, about his rejection about being chosen and precious. And so he's now, now all he's doing is, is kind of making the same point, but by uh, quoting Old Testament scriptures to, to back up his point. So yeah, so verse 6 is from Isaiah 28, and verse 7 is from Psalm 118, and verse 8 alludes to Isaiah 8. But he's really actually making the same point uh, as we've been discussing, but supporting with Scripture and then referring it to us as believers. It's not, these passages aren't just about, about Jesus, but it's actually us as followers of Christ. 
So we have Jesus, chosen and precious in the sight of God, and then Peter connects it to us. We're chosen and honoured by God, and we will not be put to shame. So for Jesus, the vindication was by raising him from the dead. But what about us? if, If we're still suffering, if we're still being mocked for our faith, and obviously I say that uh, fully recognising that I, I wouldn't call what we have in Australia persecution. We, we have uh, slight mockery and that's about it for now. Um, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters are facing in North Korea or Nigeria or, or anything like that. But, but nonetheless, Christians are still suffering. We're still waiting for that vindication. So God has vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. But how is he going to vindicate us? Well, it's actually in the exact same way. It's through the final resurrection. It's the fact that there is final judgment. It says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's future tense. It's all about whether we believe in Christ or not. And it's all about that final resurrection, that final judgment. There will be justice. Those who gave up on popularity... those who missed out on the pleasures of this world for the sake of obedience to Christ, it'll all make sense then. It'll all be worth it. It will be shown to be the wise and correct path because the alternative will be the shame that comes with God's judgment. So it will be vindicated. Not not that we were right, because we have to be careful. This is the tendency to go, I can't wait to say, I told you so on judgment day, as if we, we were right and they were wrong. But... It's not that we were right, it's not that we were better, but the one who we follow will be shown to be Lord. And see, he contrasts it. We have our vindication, but we also have the rejection of those who reject Jesus, the shame. So uh, look down in verse 8, oh, sorry, verse, verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So we see the same theme again. Unbeliever's rejection makes no difference to his honour. He's become the cornerstone, the place of honour, and the very foundation of the building, which is the church, God's people where God dwells. But even though God has done this, he's, he's proven it. They still don't see it. It still causes people to stumble, even though God has already vindicated Jesus. He's already raised him from the dead. There's tangible, physical, historical evidence for it, and yet people still stumble. So then we have to ask, why is there a difference between believers and unbelievers? Why do some people believe and some people don't? Why do you believe while maybe your atheist neighbour continues to reject it? Are you superior morally, you know, more holy, something like that? Are you smarter, just more intellectual and able to look at all the, the arguments for creation or the existence of God? Maybe better at uh, analysing history and the resurrection of Jesus? Well, that, that will be answered shortly. But what we do learn is that obedience is a part of it. It's not really about intellectual arguments for the validity of Christianity. It's obedience. 
So it says in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word. And so it's really important to remember when we're sharing our faith with others. Yes, it's important to, to defend our faith, to have good arguments as to why the Bible is reliable. But people aren't just one good argument away from receiving Christ. Their problem is disobedience. They need to be called to obedience by repenting and believing the gospel. See, no one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. He commands that you repent and believe and that you worship him. That's not optional. That's what we were all created for. It's our reason for being. And again, people might not be openly hostile to Jesus. Again, it can just be apathy. And, and that, that, that might be you. Do you see Jesus as something that's just an accessory, an addition onto your life to fit in once, maybe twice a week? Or do you see him as, as the foundation for who you are, the foundation for your life? So we are called to repent and believe the gospel. And that's the good news that Jesus made a way for you to escape. That, that final judgment, those consequences for your sin where there will be vindication for believers, but there will be shame and judgment. But God made a way for you to avoid that. He made a way for you to be reconciled with Him. So even though we were talking about the crucifixion as if it was... The, the Jews, the Pharisees rejecting him and the Roman authorities and the Roman soldiers putting him to death. All of that was just God's plan to rescue a people for himself. Jesus wasn't an unwilling participant, a, a victim. It was actually his plan. He chose, no one can take his life from him. He says, I lay it down freely. He was giving up his life for you. He was dying for your sins. And then he was raised so that you can know it to be true. And he can grant you eternal life. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I would, I would ask you, why not? What's stopping you? And I think the answer that we see in the scripture is not that you need to be convinced by uh, more intellectual arguments. The answer is you just need to be obedient to God's call to repent and believe the gospel. And there is a loving God calling you. If you turn to him, he will forgive you. If you call out to him, he will save you. So back to our question about those who believed and those who haven't. Why, why have we believed and others haven't believed? It's not because we're more moral. It's not because we're more intelligent. We actually see the reason at the end of verse 8. It says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So everyone who rejects the gospel is completely responsible for their own actions. They choose to disobey. But the reason why anyone turns to God in repentance is because God ordains it. So those who stumble do so because they were destined to do. You may see this in, in John, John 10. There's Jesus talking to the Pharisees and using the metaphor of the sheep to refer to believers and him as the shepherd. And Jesus answered them, talking to the Pharisees, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So notice Jesus doesn't say, well, you're not my sheep 
because you don't believe in me. Rather, he's, he's saying the opposite. He's saying the reason why you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. So why do we believe when others don't? Again, it's not that we're special. It's not that we're smarter. It's not because we're more moral. The, the answer is actually found in the next verse, in, in verse 9. So look down in verse 9. It says, but you are chosen. See, we're all heading in the exact same direction as the unbelievers in verse 8 that reject Jesus. They're stumbling at the message of Jesus until God intervened. So this is why it's so important that when we talk about that vindication, as, as I mentioned, we can't fall into that trap of of thinking that at the final judgment uh, we'll be saying, I told you so to our unbelieving friends because it's not because of our goodness that God has chosen us. It's not because he looked at us as more moral. It's not because we were more mighty or noble. Honestly, I, I, I don't think Scripture gives us a reason as to why he chooses the specific individuals other than that he gets the glory out of saving Sinful people who don't deserve it. And on that final day, all we'll be able to do is praise God, nothing within us. Let's look down at verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So again, this isn't saying that God chooses some people for sin and other people to repent. Rather, he's saying that we're, we're all sinners. We're all running away. We're all going in the opposite direction and God chose a people out of them, an elect people. And, and his language that he uses is really important. So, uh, got here Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. This is just after God has called the people of Israel out of Egypt and he says, Now therefore, if you, are, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God used that language to establish a covenant with the people of Israel. And we often think of the Old Testament and Israel in very closed-off terms, that God was singling out a nation for them to become isolated and separate, the only people to follow him and to keep it to themselves. But he says this entire nation is to be a kingdom of priests. So yes, it's true in one sense that in Israel there was a specific tribe, the Levites, that would be the priests, the mediators for Israel. But then the entire nation of Israel were to be priests to the rest of the world. They were to be mediators. And I think actually the main role of priests wasn't actually offering the sacrifices. That was a very small part of it. Um, See, I haven't got it up there. It's in uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 10, verse 11. God gives the commands to the Levites. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So the main role for the priest was, was preaching, teaching the word. And so that was the role of Israel was to be a, a kingdom with a priestly function to teach the other nations about God. See, all the Old Testament was always about God reaching all the nations. They were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. Even the, the very first promise to Abraham, 
was so that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And and that's fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we see in the church, us being a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. I think I'll skip over all all the various debates uh, that there is with regard to the relationship between Israel and the church and... um, some people see the church as, as plan B and then we get raptured out of there and then he goes back to plan A with, the, with Israel and there's, there's all sorts of different systems of theology. But I think basically what I believe that Peter is getting at here is that the church is the continuation and, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament system. We, we, we have the exact same role and responsibility. Israel were called to reach the nations around them and we as the church, even though we're made up of people from every nation, We are called to preach and reach those around us with the good news of the gospel. And I think that's already implied simply by calling us a kingdom of priests. It's implied that we are to go out and preach about God. But just in case you don't miss it, he makes it even clearer. So uh, look down again uh, in verse 9. So we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That right there is the church. We are a chosen people that have been called in order that we might proclaim the goodness of God. That's our primary role. In our worship, we proclaim the goodness of God. We proclaim what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. In our evangelism, we're proclaiming what God has done for us in Christ. In our preaching, in our prayer meetings, in whatever it is that we do, not just as a corporate gathering, but as we go out there into the world, we're proclaiming what God has done for us in Christ. And so I think he gives us a few things to focus on. Because it's one thing for me to go, go out there and preach the gospel. Good. Okay, that, that's it, done. But it can actually be difficult to know how do I go about doing that? What, what exactly should I say? What should I focus on? And so he gives us a few things here to, to focus on when we're sharing God's goodness with others. So the first thing he says uh, is at the end of verse 9. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So that type of language is is commonly used to refer to our conversion. We were blinded by sin, we were enslaved to sin, unable to see our state, but also unable to see the greatness of God. We were were blinded, we were living in darkness. We didn't realise it at the time, we were blinded by our own blindness. And then when we come to Christ, it all makes sense. Uh, I found it amazing reading the scriptures... I'd already read Philippians before I became a Christian and then all of a sudden you understand the gospel and you read it and it all makes sense. It's been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So we were in darkness and then God interrupted our lives. And that's what God did for me. I, I grew up in church. I, I'd heard the gospel so many times. I... I knew to say the right words, that that we're saved by grace through faith. But deep down, I was prideful. I I had rejected the gospel because I was trusting in my own goodness, that I wasn't living like other people around me. As long as I wasn't like the bad kids at school, 
then I should be okay, really. And if I sin, well, then I just need to keep trying harder and that'll, that'll make up for my, my wrong. And all of a sudden it clicked. All of a sudden God convicted me of my sins. I, I, I realized that when I'd been talking about Jesus dying on the cross, that wasn't just some abstract concept, some broad reality that Jesus died as a, as a general historical fact, but it was actually the very sins that I was being convicted of Jesus was dying for those sins. And all of a sudden it all made sense. I needed to trust in that. I needed Jesus. And the only explanation as to why I had that transformation is not because I figured something out or not because I all of a sudden felt bad about my sins. It was that the Holy Spirit was coming and transforming me. And so if you are a believer in Christ here today, then we'll all have a testimony. God will have interrupted our lives. None of us were born Christians. We had to be saved by the gospel. And I know for some people that will be uh, some amazing story uh, involving, you know, horrific crimes followed by a big, you know, lightning bolt moment. And for others, it'll, it'll seem by our earthly standards a bit more tame. But the reality is it takes a miracle to save every single one of us. We're born dead in sin and need transformation from God. So if you have been saved by the gospel, then you have a testimony that you can share. And I, I think that's a, that's a really good start. If, if you're struggling to share your faith, struggling to share what you believe, then tell people what God has done in your life, that you were in darkness and you've been brought into his marvelous light. And so maybe that's something that we could do as we're, we're talking with one another after the service Share with people, share, share with them your testimony of how God transformed your life. And I think that's a really good way that if we can practice with one another, then we'll be better equipped to go and share our testimony with other people. I think it can also be a very powerful thing because people have heard about religion, religion enough, they've, they've heard about doctrines and, and dogma, but people will actually stop and listen if, if you share with them what God is actually doing in your own life. So we're not offering them mental knowledge of religious faith. We're sharing with them something that can transform their life. It's a genuine experience with the living God and we can offer them that. And then the next part in the passage, it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So we're not just calling people to individual transformation, like I was talking about with the, the testimony. The next thing that we're to proclaim is that God is gathering together a people from those who are not his people. See, God, God doesn't take good people and make them Christians he, he takes sinners like us, the most unlikely converts, and makes them his people. So that means we can, offer, we can offer that when we share about God's goodness. And it means that we can offer it to anyone, anyone who is not God's people. There's no reason to look at anyone and say that they are beyond God's reach. Sometimes we think there are some people that, oh, they would just make a, a great Christian, they're already so lovely, and then there are people that are snarky atheists that rub you the wrong way, and yet God can save anyone who is not his people and make them his people. And, and just a side note as well, this passage leaves no room for, for racism or nationalism. God is saving a people out of every nation. 
the holy people is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and language. God is taking people from far off and making them his own people. And then finally, it says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So finally, we see the great gift of the gospel, mercy. God offers us mercy. God offers us forgiveness. We should constantly be proclaiming to people how good it is to be forgiven, how kind God has been to make a way for us to receive mercy. It's easy for us to become prideful when we read about those who disobey in contrast to those who have been chosen. But our response should be just the opposite. We should offer mercy and know that God can save anyone in a heartbeat. If he's chosen a people for himself, then no one is beyond his reach. We can offer mercy. So that's our great calling, to go. Not only are we a chosen people, but we are called to go and proclaim that. So we can do that by proclaiming our testimony, by proclaiming that God is calling a people to himself and proclaiming that God is offering mercy to anyone who will call out to him. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called a people to yourself. And Lord, we cannot boast, we can't take any credit for what you've done in our lives, but we thank you that you interrupted our lives when we were running the wrong way, when we were, were uh, disobeying the word. You, you intervened and you saved us and we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness and the strength to go and proclaim that goodness uh, to those in our community. Give us strength, give us wisdom to speak up, to not remain silent, but be obedient to to what you have called us to. We ask this in your precious name.